I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello there, everybody. I'm Thurl Bailey, and welcome to Thurl Talk. It's Tuesday, March 31st, and first of all, I hope all of you out there are adhering to all the public health orders, local and national, uh, so hopefully we can together manage this COVID-19 outbreak. So I hope you're doing your part. Um, and, and with most of those orders being simply just stay safe and stay home. You know, I know everyone can't do that. There's some um, essential activities that have to do with your job and maybe going out and getting essential things for your family. We understand that. But just be safe. Be safe and do what the local and national health officials recommend. Um, as you all know, when we started the show, we talked about the premise of what this podcast is about. And it, it really is about sharing stories. And some of you may be asking, well, why is that so important? Well, it's because I think all of us know that stories serve a lot of purposes. I mean, they can be healing. I remember many times growing up when I was somehow hurt emotionally or even physically, uh, my parents would have these talks with me and, and talk to me about similar situations they went through. It was very, very healing and very helpful, and very educational and and many people hopefully benefit from getting the opportunity to to pass on their wisdom. You know, it's kind of a legacy for some. So stories are just important. And this could be especially powerful for people who don't always feel like they have a chance to help other people. They find that help in things that they've gone through, their stories, their journeys. And I think the bottom line for me is it's about resiliency. Every one of us can can get better at creating and sustaining that resiliency in our lives. Because all of us will surely experience some kind of adversity in our lives, and most of us will go through some pretty tough times. But you know us as humans, we're we have a remarkable capacity for for bouncing back. And I have to tell you that uh Speaking of resiliency, I'm not sure that there may be a, a, a better example of that than our next our guest today. Um, in, when you talk about bouncing back, this man is a walking miracle. 
and, and even more specific, <laughs> I think he's a walking and talking nine miracles, and we'll learn a little bit more about that. But right now, uh, welcome to Thorough Talk, Ranger Brody Young. How you doing? You hear me out there? Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you, Thorough. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, man. And and just to tell the listeners a little bit about you, uh, right now you are a Utah State Park Ranger, and you've been doing that for, for quite a while. I think it's just since 2006. Yeah, that's correct. Yep. Well, you know, I was reading your profile, and it struck me that you probably um, love the outdoors. Did you grow up uh, loving the outdoors, yeah. or were you forced to go outside? Or what's what's the story about the outdoors and you? Well, I grew up on the Wasatch Front there, uh, you know, in uh, Utah County, and uh, loved loved the mountains on the east side there, and loved to go and explore that in up Provo Canyon, and actually went further into the outdoors and became a professional river guide. So I would run trips on motorized or non-motorized boats down the Grand Canyon, Cataract Canyon, Westwater Canyon, a lot of rivers in southern Utah that bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. So I found a lot of joy in in helping people get through difficult situations on trips where you're out in the backcountry far from all those, you know, nice amenities that, that we get to enjoy and yeah. show people a good time. And so, yeah, I love, love the outdoors and new I had to get back to it, and that led me to, uh, you know, full-time paying job um, down in Moab as a ranger. So you graduated also from the University of Utah. Yeah, I saw you had a major in psychology and a minor in sociology. Yeah, that's right. Go Utes. Ah. I you know, love, love going to the U. But, uh, yeah, college education uh, has certainly blessed my life. Well, you know, a lot of people, when they go through that process— even me to a certain extent, you, you wonder if you're ever going to use it, right? You wonder if you're ever going to put what you learn to use. And, and I know I did. I mean, I majored in, I actually started when I went to college in political science, of all things. I wanted to be. Oh, in, no kidding. Yeah, I, want, yeah, yeah, I wanted to be in politics. <laughs> I heard a little sarcasm <laughs> in that, no kidding. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I served as a congressional page, actually, for three years under a congressman uh, in Washington, D.C. at the Capitol. Great job. Um, But it also solidified the fact that I did not want to be a politician. So (laughs) I I changed my major to TV radio communications, and I guess the rest is history. But my guess is that you've had a chance to use that and more uh, with your, your degree from University of Utah. Yeah, uh, I was going to go into marriage and family therapy and uh, showed up to the grad school and they said there's no work, there's the field's too crowded. And so that caused me to change directions and being a ranger, you know, uh, basically a cop out in the backcountry, you, you learn how to use verbal skills. And so psychology was a really good fit and uh, helped me out a lot on most days. Yeah, good for you. Well, Brody, um, let's go to November 19th, 2010. Um, routine patrol that day. So why don't you take us with you? Take us with you on that patrol and tell us what happened. 
Sure, sure. No, uh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. I was, uh, I'd worked all that day in a normal shift and was actually had an opportunity to work an overtime uh, shift. And it was a youth alcohol grant that allowed us to go out and find underage kids drinking or using drugs and take those things away and, and get them back to their homes or to the to the right people. And so we'd had a lot of success the night before. And so on this night, my supervisor and I, my lieutenant, we, at the beginning of the shift, split up, went and scouted out places where maybe kids were partying and, uh, you know, around campfires and whatnot. And uh, we'd done this many times before with a lot of success. And so we went out, scouted parties, and um, the first place I went to was a trailhead called the Poison Spider. It's a trailhead. It's one of the most difficult rated trails in the area due to uh, just that it's dangerous, and we get a lot of calls for, you know, help for people on these trails. And so I was going out, checking out different places where I thought camps would be, and went to this trailhead and saw this uh, kind of lone car sitting in the back of this parking lot. So I pulled up and uh, couldn't see the back of it, the license plate, and so I pulled up, got out of my truck, and walked around the vehicle, wrote down the license plate. And uh, as I was walking around the other side of the vehicle, I noticed a lump in the backseat, and so I knocked on the window several times. And someone woke up and opened his door, and I told him who I was and why I was there and that he couldn't camp there. But we had talked about where he could go camp. It's a real calm, casual conversation there were no red flags internally for me like this guy was a dangerous person it was 99 percent of you know the many contacts i make out in the backcountry alone it was at night you know out out in the desert and um we talked about where he could go camp i asked for a name or some id and he said he didn't have id which was common for me we usually don't take their, you know, driver's licenses out when they recreate in fear of losing right. their wallet or something. And so the name he gave me was uh, Michael Orr. That sounds familiar. Do you recognize that name? Yes, I do. The Blind Side. Yeah, yeah from the movie uh, Blind Side. Little did I know I was, ironically, about to get blindsided. And so I wrote the name down, fake date of birth, and I asked him to wait there. And I went to walk back to my truck. And as I was walking back, just before I got out of my vehicle, that's when uh, the shots rang out. Now, I'm left-handed, um, born and raised that way. That's just what what I do. I'm a southpaw. There's not very many of us in the world. And, and he hit me right into my left um, humerus, which shattered the bone. And I screamed out, I've been shot. I knew, I knew it. And I turned away, and as I was turning away, looked over my right shoulder, I could just see muzzle flash and him advancing on me, shooting one round after the other. And it was fast, just a boom, 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 boom. Well, as I turned, I believe that's when three more rounds um, hit me in the back. And I wear a vest. I wear it religiously. You wear the uniform. You wear the vest. This vest is a bullet-resistant vest and certainly protected me but one of those rounds um 
they were really closely knit together, and one of those rounds actually went through the vest and hit me in the vertebrae into my back. And I believe that's when I fell to the ground. As I went to the ground, I could just see him advancing and almost standing over me, firing one round after the other. Now I'm laying on the ground, and there's some turd flying and, and dust. We're in a gravel parking lot. And I'm thinking, man, when is he going to stop shooting? It was just fast and quick. And then um, he stopped shooting. And there was this, honestly, this moment where I had a choice. And the choice was you can either lie down or you can get up and fight. And I did not want to die. It's like time stood still. It's the cliche, but it really stood still. And I was presented with the choice. And I got up and I just... I did, it would never occur to me that death was an option. And so I did what training teaches you to do. I stood up and went to the back of my vehicle to find cover. And as I got up, I think it startled him, and he backtracked and went to the front of my truck. We began to play this cat-and-mouse game around my truck, and I had no idea how injured I was, that I had been shot nine times. A lot of those rounds, when I was on the ground, went up and low and under the vest and inside and bounced around and caused a lot of damage. And I believe at this point I was just running on pure adrenaline and then what had training had taught me. And so we played this cat and mouse game. I ended up on the right side of my truck towards the back, and he was at the front towards uh, kind of my front uh, door left left driver's side door, and I could see him through my windows, and I looked down. My left arm wasn't responding. It wouldn't move. It wouldn't do anything, and I realized, I guess I called myself, you idiot, use your other hand. And so I crossed Drew, grabbing the gun out of the holster on my left side and got a really firm grip and then saw him, a silhouette anyway, through my truck door, and I began firing through my windows at him. Well, I think this really caused him to uh, panic. And I was counting my rounds during this whole time and, and knowing that my reload was going to be interesting with only one hand, my non-dominant hand. Well, I was counting the rounds with carry 15, get up to 13, 14, and I released the magazine and I put the gun between my legs and I grabbed, you know, an extra magazine and as I grabbed the first one, I actually dropped it on the ground. Luckily, we carried two. So I grabbed the second, put it into the, you know, the magazine holder of the gun right there in the handle, and uh, actually used the rear sights to trigger around into the chamber and then went up and went after the target again. Now I began to fire more rounds, and he retreated to the front of his car, and then he raised his hands. And I moved up to the right rear side mirror, and he said, you got me. Uh -huh. So we're taught in training when the threat stops coming at you, you stop going after the threat. So we had that moment of silence and that exchange of words. And then uh, I began to lose consciousness at that point. I think my adrenaline had run out, and I was just running out of, running out of juice or gas, so to say. So I backpedaled to the back of my truck. It's about 30 feet away, and I laid down and, and went unconscious. As I was going unconscious, I fired more rounds, 
in his direction. But um, I went unconscious, and at that point, I think he thought that I had died, and so he got in his vehicle and he uh, drove off. Now, if you're familiar with this area, it's open and vast, and there are tons of places to hide. But he got in his vehicle and went away from Moab. He went downstream. We're kind of in the canyon. The Colorado River was right there. He went down towards Canyonlands National Park and out where it really opens up, where there are thousands of caves and cracks, and he can disappear. And, and he was gone. Well, several minutes later, I wake up. I'm on my back. My truck's still running. You know, my lights are on. I look uh, down my body, and I, I see that he's gone. And then I realize, oh, man, no one knows I'm here. I've got to get out. I've got to get to my radio to call out. I was wearing a handheld radio at the time, but it wouldn't work in the canyon where we were at. In fact, it was really hard to get out on the radio at all. But I knew my only lifeline was to get to that truck radio. So at this point, uh, I feel like someone has poured concrete on me. I, I can't move. I I just, I'm slowly dying at this point, and I've got to get to that truck. And so the most, well, remarkable thing took place, thoughts of uh, my wife and my kids started pouring into my head. I had three kids, and they were six and three and nine months at the time, and just seeing their faces and, and wanting to grow old with them and, and be a part part of their lives it actually gave me the strength to begin to move. And so with gun in hand, I would have to grab my left arm and bring it with me because it was real lifeless and loose and it wasn't, it wasn't coming with me, so to say. And so gun in hand, grab my arm, begin to roll. So I'd half roll onto my stomach, take a breath, roll again, take a breath. Eventually I got to the rear bumper of my vehicle and readjusted and rolled down the left side of my vehicle to get to my the entry to my truck. I get there and my door is open. Now I've always felt since I started the job in 2006 was if you're in a traffic stop, you keep that door open. I've never felt comfortable mm. being inside the truck, but Train, I, training again, huh? It's totally training. It was just heaven sent that that door was open. I wouldn't have been able to have opened it or gotten high enough. Um, I just had sustained so much damage. So I reach the door, it's open, and I'm able to grab the mic, and I think about what I'm gonna say, because we're taught not to be all frantic over the radio. So I take a few breaths, I say price to Alpha 6-9, I'm a poison spider mesa trailhead, I've been shot, please hurry. So I lay down the mic, I lay the gun down, and then I lay back onto the ground, and I begin to hear familiar voices on the radio, those who I work with. This is Moab, small town, and I hear the, the help that's coming. My supervisor, who I'd split up with that night, comes over the radio and calls for a helicopter immediately. Um, has no idea what kind of situation I'm in. And he's on the other side of, of the county. And so helicopter gets rolling, and uh, I lay down, and I... I don't know what to do after that. I'd never taught myself or trained myself on what to do. I'd never 
trained on how to treat my wounds or how to, you know, self-preserve yourself. But here's what I did and what I studied. I'd read some research on breathing and how you can slow your vitals down by controlled breathing. And at this point, breathing was getting really hard. Um, as I'm filling up internally with all the internal damage in the blood. And if I could just focus on one breath to the next, uh, I was going to make it. I and just you, knew it. And you really, at that point, you really weren't aware of the total damage, right? I mean, you just knew you had been shot several times. Yes. I, I, the pain was all in my left arm, honestly. Let me tell you the damage I sustained. So my heart was damaged, my small intestine, my colon, right kidney, liver, diaphragm, left lung, spine, oh pelvis, left humerus, the triceps muscle on the left side, the right forearm, right femoral nerves actually was shot in the right arm. Didn't really know it. Um, and then my right hip flexor, among other things. I mean, I just didn't know I was that damaged, but I knew if I was still breathing, I, I was going to make it. Well, Ranger Brody Young, with that, and we're going to take a quick break here and come back, but one of the things that stands out to me, even after you told me, just told me all the damage that you sustained, was your calmness when you got on that radio and... Can you repeat what you said when you called out? You bet. I said Price, 2 Alpha 6 9, which was my radio number at the time. I'm at Poison Spider Mesa Trailhead. I've been shot. Please hurry. And I, I feel like I'm right there with you, and you said it with that calm voice. Um, we're going to take a quick break, Brody, and come back and talk to you more about this incredible, incredible journey of yours. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Thorough Talk. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. We are blessed to have on our podcast today uh, Utah State Ranger Brody Young uh, as he's taking us with him on this journey. And where we left off, Brody, was you talking about uh, your training and and that truck door being open uh, and if it had not been open, you would not have been able to get up in your truck and call for help, thinking about your family, your kids, uh, willing yourself to get up. 
and call for help. Take us now uh, to when you heard those voices, the voices of your your colleagues uh, and their response. Sure. So um, thanks again, by the way. Um, I was on the ground hearing help coming. It was about 10 to 12 minutes before help arrived. One thing they didn't know was if he had left or not. And so the scene was considered extremely dangerous. So two officers showed up first, a county and a, and a city officer. And they tactfully you know, came to this parking lot, which is elevated up off of the main road there. Once they came in and cleared, they came up to me and started assessing me and seeing all the, gosh, all the casings, bullet casings on the ground everywhere and, and the damage and broken windows. And they clear the scene. They come up to me and I'm conscious and they're asking for descriptors like who he is, what he, what he maybe looked like, where he went and such things. And so once they cleared the scene, they called in uh, the ambulance. Now, there's a big four-wheel drive. It's jacked up. Um, ambulance that can go just about anywhere. And uh, I was going to get to ride in this ambulance. And so the first responders there came up and uh, came up to me and started uh, cutting off my uniform. So I'm laying on the ground, and I'm just quiet. I'm just trying to focus on one breath to the next. And the thought comes in my head like, oh, they're cutting my clothes off. I'm not getting these clothes back. Now, I was in the cycle of laundry where I was wearing my favorite uniform, my favorite Under Armour down to the socks and the boots. And my thought was, oh, I'm not going to be able to get these back. And it was kind of disappointing, kind of reassuring. Like there was this, still this fight in me that I was going to come back I was going to do this job again. I was going to come back and work and, and make it. It was just a fleeting thought. It was, it was real interesting. I wanted, I wanted that uniform back, but I knew it, was, it wasn't going to happen. So they cut off my clothes and um, started assessing me. My supervisor shows up at that point, and they start asking me these questions, and I get put into the ambulance and I'm conscious for the ride back to back to Moab, back to Allen Memorial Hospital, which was actually a legally condemned building at the time. The new hospital was about to open up, and so resources were really limited. It was uh, really against me surviving, the odds, anyway. It was part of the, the, right. the questioning to, to keep you conscious as much as possible? I think so. I think so. There was a lot of that, and you're going to be okay, and we're going to get through this, right. and just to keep me conscious, because I was, I was close to being unconscious. Um, I wouldn't speak unless they asked, kind of a thing. It was just focusing on, on breathing. So I get to the hospital, and um, there's a lot of chaos. I was told later um, there wasn't much blood in the ER room. I'm going to get a little more of it here, but um, on my way from the ambulance ride to the hospital, I'd lost all of my blood. They said when they opened the doors to the ambulance, it flowed out, they said, like a like a stream 
Wow. Kind of like a waterfall onto the ground. I just had no blood. My veins were collapsed. I'm sure I was white as a ghost. And uh, it was really difficult to get blood into me. So they do what's called an IO. It's, um, I won't even try to pronounce it medically, but what they do is they drill into the bone and just below your kneecap, and it's kind of the last resort to get blood back into the body. And uh, the drilling didn't hurt. It was the flow of blood into your bone marrow. Here I am, shot nine times, and I'm screaming at this blood flow into my knee. I thought they were sawing my leg off. I was in so much pain. It was far worse (laughs) than being shot, honestly. But they usually do it on unconscious uh, patients. Um, let me let me talk about my wife for a sec. Wendy, she got a call at home, and it's from another supervisor of mine. And he, he says, oh, wait, let me back up. She first gets a call from a friend whose uh, husband was a trooper, and she had a radio at her house, and she heard the traffic. She calls Wendy and says, you need to get to the hospital right now. Have you heard? And Wendy's like, heard what? What's going on? And she says, no one's told you yet? And she says, no, what is going on? She says, let me call you back. And she hangs up (laughs) on Wendy. If you can imagine what that was for her. Well, right after she hangs up, um, the phone rings again, and it's a supervisor of mine. And he finally spits it out. Brody has been shot. He's in the hospital. He doesn't look good. You better hurry over there. So she hangs up with my supervisor, and, and there's a knock right at the door. And it's uh, the friend who she had just talked to. She had run over as fast as she could and said, I'll watch the kids. You get over there. So Wendy jumps in the car, and it's about a two-minute ride to the hospital. And Mid-drive to the hospital, um, if you can imagine the state she's in at this point, she's overcome with this, I guess, um, comfort or peace and specific words in her mind that says, tells her Brody's going to be okay. He's going to live. It's going to be all right. So she shows up to the hospital extremely calm, you know, running into the ER room. It's chaos. There's doctors. There's attorneys there. I mean, just all local people who I know and love and work with are there. And um, the ER doctor actually had to walk up to her and says, are you, are you really the spouse? I mean, it was just how calm she was because of that reassurance. She was the only in the room that knew I was going to be okay. You see, I had the look of, of death mm. is what ER um, you know, all the staff there call it. You can tell when someone comes in and they know kind of right off whether they're going to make it or not. And I had that look of, he's, he's not going to make it. I was just so damaged. Well, I spent about 20 minutes there and getting blood into me, patching me up, and then they intubated me. And I uh, was put on the helicopter that had just arrived and flown to St. Mary's Hospital in Grand Junction. And then I woke up about a month later. It was probably the greatest <laughs> month wow. of my life. I don't remember. I don't remember much. Wow. I I sense that uh, 
you and your family are a family of faith, and that that had to be something that that really helped you, not just you going through that ordeal with the assailant, but beyond that. Certainly. Um, having a perspective of the big picture of who we are, where we came from, where we're going, um, is certainly a comfort. And, yeah, we wholeheartedly believe um, in something greater than ourselves. I mean, it has many names. Yeah. We just we just call him, you know, our Father or God. But well, let me. There, there, there are. Can I quickly just tell Absolutely. you there were many things that preserved me that night when I was shooting through my vehicle. What was going in my mind was I had a conversation with my chief the summer before we were on a work river trip. Um, down Cataract Canyon, and we were sitting in the sand that night, and we were talking about the caliber of bullet we carried at the time. It was a forty caliber bullet. It's what he had that shot me with two of kind of a forty caliber, bigger, bigger size bullet. But we talked about what that bullet would go through and what it wouldn't. And we were talking about my truck, actually, and how it would go through everything but the engine block. And that's what I did That on that training was I fired through my vehicle, which is something you don't usually do. You fire, firing through your cover. Mm-hmm. The spring before we had training to <clears throat> shoot through glass or shoot through our windshields. And uh, had I not gone through that motion or that skill set, <clears throat> excuse me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done what I did that night. Also about nine months before this happened, had a real strong premonition to get fit consistently. Cardio, you know, doing the sit-ups, the push-ups, the running, kind of the CrossFit. Yeah. Craze that we see now. And doctor said, had I not had the girth and the shape I was in, I wouldn't have made it. See, one of those bullets hit my heart, went into the, or nicked the pericardial sac. It's kind of the sac that surrounds the heart. Right keeps it together and it had nicked it and bruised it and uh another round sits in my lung still there today another round sits in the vertebrae in my back it's just in the perfect spot that uh it's surrounded by everything that's important in a vertebrae there's one in my hip and then i just have a lot of shrapnel all over the inside of me you can't tell me that those bullets were, you know, guided in some way. They just they sit in the right places and getting the right help that night. Having a helicopter available, just so many things went right, and uh, you know, I'm forever grateful for that. I've had several cop friends that were killed that year, 2010, that didn't make it. Right. One, some even in Utah, and. You wonder, you know, why, why me and that, and what helps me get through that survival's guilt was living, honoring them through through what I do in my life, and uh, I think it's really applicable to the theme of, of this podcast, and, and uh, man, thank you for letting me share it. No, no, thank you, thank you, uh, and, and it's... Obviously, at some point of this, you you discovered 
who the assailant was, correct? Yeah. Um, at the time, he was 40 years old. His name was Lance Leroy Ariano. He was living in San Pete County at the time, um, but had come down to the Moab area, we think, because of, of a fight he had with his mom and maybe decided that uh, this was kind of it. Um, I know he had a rough upbringing, and, you know, we make thousands of choices that, that lead to, to moments in our lives, and, and this was one of those where I think a lot of um, probably not the best choices were made, and I didn't know him. He didn't know me. We just happened to meet that night, and while we'll never get to interview or ask him as he after this disappeared, uh, went missing for five years, and then two local kids found him, um, at least his remains, in kind of a cave. It was really more like just crumbled rock kind of out there in the backcountry. But these two kids uh, were pretty vigilant as there was a $30,000 reward for his whereabouts, and they were determined one Christmas break to, to find him. And so... They actually had a pretty good plan. They laid a map onto the table and made grids of areas they would search each day. They had a pretty good idea. Um, their dad was an investigator for the city, and they talked it over for dinner, you know, around dinner occasionally, where he just he couldn't be far away with no resources, no money, no cell phone, uh, just no no capability of getting out of there. And uh, the end of their second day, they... The, uh, green bag sticking just out on the rocks and they opened the bag and found the weapon that matched the description of, you know, the gun he, sh he shot me with. And and then they searched a little bit and then they saw actually a rib bone sticking, a white rib bone sticking out against the red rock, which led into this cave. And, and this was a Christmas Eve of all things, 2015. I'm at home making vanilla to give to my friends and I get a knock at the door and it's my supervisor who was there that night five years before and he asked me to come outside and he says we found him and I was just overwhelmed um what did that mean to you because, was closure yeah definitely closure but really uh the fear of he could hurt others mm, right honestly and I had this little I don't know internal guard that I could finally let go. I actually got pretty sick after that. Um, I could finally let down, and it was a huge relief and closure. His death wasn't a relief. I don't wish death on anyone, um, but it was definitely a relief to close to close that chapter, at least at least that part of the chapter. So, well, brother, you did something. I read that you did something, and we talk about lessons that we all can learn through our choices and decisions and things that happen to us. But in your, I guess, part of that closure, you basically sent out a message to his family. Is that correct? Yeah, that is right. Yeah. And what was that message? That message was, we hold no ill will. We've 
we found forgiveness and I'm an optimist and um, so much more good has come out of this than the bad. I mean, to all respect to their family, but we've found faith in humanity. There were so many people that reached out to us through throughout this. It, you know, it's, it's um, discouraging when the few and the bad get highlighted on the news when so much more good is happening all around us. Yeah. Sorry about that. When so much more bad, I mean, so much more good is happening all around us. It, it just reaffirmed our faith in, in society, and we've been, gosh, blessed with, with so much. Honestly, I, I get to live, and, and I get to be a dad and a father, and... Uh, I just want to read you or tell you this quote. It's, it's, it's about never giving up. It, it says this, if people don't like you, that's okay. They can't whip you. But if they can whip you, they can't kill you. But if they do kill you, they can't eat you. But if they eat you, you don't have to taste good. Isn't that the epitome of never giving up? <laughs> this guy was trying to eat me that night and I was not going to taste good. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's the point. Never, never give up. Man, I am, uh, I'm truly edified right now. Uh, and, and certainly grace, great, gracious and grateful to have you, uh, as a part of this, this podcast, uh, you're, you've decided to take this journey and all that you've learned to, to go out and, and teach others. Um, you're an inspirational, motivational speaker now. What drove, what got you into that, and uh, how did you decide to to go out and and take this journey and and help other people? And what was what's your message to others? Well, waking up in the hospital, it was really groggy and. Uh... Just uh, really a, a gray cloud, and um, friends would come visit me or, and, and tell me kind of the details of it. And uh, I was full of fear. Someone had tried to end me that night, and that's that's a scary thing. And um, the only way to to overcome that fear was to to run at it. And the story was too good not to tell. Mm-hmm. And so that began, you know, <clears throat> down this path of, <clears throat> excuse me, trying to tell a tell story and, and tell it the right way and, and make it real. And it was just too good not to tell. And so I was able to to go down a path to, gosh, it's created opportunities to speak in front of a lot of groups and around the country. And it's honestly, it's, it's a burden and a blessing as uh, you kind of relive it every time you tell it, but it's been really therapeutic, a good reminder on what's most important in life. And that's this, it's your relationship with that higher power, God, family, friends, and then how you treat your enemies. You know, I've taken people to jail and I pride myself in getting a handshake after 
they have been taken to jail or after giving a citation or people deserve, you know, maybe better treatment than than what they're credited for, but I believe in the best of humanity and and believe that if you treat someone right and occasionally someone needs to be <laughs> ground stabilized and you've got to apply that minor discomfort and my world it's you know sometimes you got to take people to jail but people deserve to be loved and that's what's the most important in life well Ranger- none of us are immune to <clears throat> excuse me the the bad things that happen to us it's what we do with those bad things we can we can get bitter or we can get better so i choose to get better and uh, i hope this podcast will help gosh, other people to to be better, choose better. Well, it's a great podcast, man. Thanks for doing it. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I can't even begin to thank you enough for sharing that with us. And I know you have and will and continue to change a lot of lives. Um, I did want to ask you, though, you did get to put that uniform back on, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I went through uh, about a year of physical therapy and another year, I guess, being evaluated to make sure I wouldn't, no offense to the postal workers, go postal (laughs) on the public. But uh, yeah, I get to wear the uniform again. I'm actually uh, a lieutenant now down here in the southeast region of the state or the east side of Utah. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to serve people again and well, and uh, it's a great profession, even though there are there is some hard things that come with it. But yeah. I imagine you're probably kind of busy too at this time with uh, COVID nineteen and some of the things going on restriction wise. Is that true? Yeah, it's interesting. We we spent all week. Um, Grand County had a health order, and there's no camping allowed here. And Moab is a huge destination for people on vacation and. We've been out telling people to you got to go home. You can't camp here. And it is so quiet here, a quiet we have not heard <laughs> heard of um, since I've moved here. Um, the stars are clear at night. You can go outside and not hear a car driving at all. It's a very strange, maybe a reflective time um, to really focus on gosh what's what's most important maybe simplify our lives a little bit it's been a real unique experience for my family and i and i I think for many too i hear you well ranger brody young thank you so much for uh for joining me today and my best to you and your family um i appreciate the the work you've done here today you you have blessed my life and I'm sure those who are listening to your story um, will also be blessed and and, and better for it. Uh, I hope that when all this COVID-19 stuff dies down, you'll take my invitation, you and your family, to come up and watch a jazz game. I'll be your host. How about oh, that? Oh, man. Uh, thank you. <laughs> We'd love that. You got it. Uh, thank you so much again uh, for being on Thorough Talk. And those of you listening, check back with us next week, and we'll have more for you on Thorough Talk. Have a good day.